Hi, I'm Dan. Welcome to the Systematic Speaking Podcast. This is part two of three looking at Aristotle's theory of public speaking. Today we're focusing on pathos. Just like ethos, pathos can be broken down into smaller sections. I'll go through each one and give you some suggestions on how you can improve it. But first, let's get an overview of what pathos is. In short, pathos is your ability to embody different emotional states and to generate an emotional response in your audience. Emotion is a powerful tool. It's a primal force that influences our behavior, our mood, and our decision-making. An audience will likely forget almost everything that you tell them, but they won't forget how you make them feel. Linking emotion to your arguments gives them a better chance of being remembered and being acted on. If the content of your speech is meat and vegetables, then emotion is the spice that makes it appealing. It's important that the speaker leads by example. If you want your audience to feel a certain way, you need to embody that emotion first. This is done by starting at the same emotional level as the audience and then moving into the desired emotion. If you want them to feel angry, then you need to be angry. If you want them to be relaxed, then you need to be calm and relaxed. It's unreasonable to expect the audience to become emotional if you aren't willing to do the same. Most importantly, and I cannot stress this enough, do not fake emotion. Don't fake it, ever. Attempting to fake emotion is so difficult that it's easier to do it the right way. Audiences are savvy. If you're trying too hard to elicit a particular emotional response from them, they will disengage. When we feel we are being coerced or guilt-tripped, we stop trusting the speaker. Being disingenuous or melodramatic is the fastest way to lose your listeners' attention and respect. Use emotional appeals for a purpose. Only guide your audience to an emotion if you're connecting it to an argument. This will anchor meaning to your ideas and help you move to your next point. That's an overview. Pathos can be broken down into the following components. One, contrasting emotion. Two, stories. Three, humor. Four, analogies and metaphors. And five, congruence. Let's start with contrasting emotions. Contrast creates interest. This is true for so many things in life, but especially true for anything that is designed. It's a fundamental staple of art, music, cooking, film, and writing. Contrast is a disruption of pattern. If used correctly, it's also surprising. Too much of one thing, even if it's really, really good, gets boring. Good speakers use contrast all the time when they're speaking. They'll contrast loud with soft, fast with slow, high pitch with low pitch, and they use contrasting emotions. I can't overstate how important this principle is. If you ever get stuck with a speech, just remember, contrast creates interest. While any emotion can be used with its opposite number, the following seven pairs were mentioned by Aristotle in rhetoric. Anger and calmness, friendship and enmity, fear and confidence, shame and shamelessness, 
kindness and unkindness, envy and emulation, pity and indignation. Arguments work best when they're paired with a complementary emotion. The audience will be more likely to donate to a charity if they're feeling sympathetic. An angry crowd is more likely to respond to a call to action than a bored audience. Examine your speech. Have a look through it and determine what emotion or combination of emotions would be most helpful to your message being heard. You can build emotional appeals into the speech based on your conclusion. Emotions can be roughly categorized as either positive or negative. Positive emotions are ones that you should associate with yourself, your audience, and your ideas. These include things like warmth, generosity, honesty, love, connection, calmness, and confidence, among many others. Negative emotions, like anger, spite, and fear, can be used to prompt action. Just because they're negative doesn't mean that they don't have a purpose. We work hard to avoid emotional pain. Negative emotions can also be linked to your opponent's arguments if you're in a debate and can be used to discredit them. An example of how contrasting emotions can be used to inspire action can be seen in the final paragraph of a speech from Sir Winston Churchill. This speech has gone down as his finest hour speech and it was given in 1940. And I quote, The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour." End quote. Let's put aside issues with empire and colonies for this example and just look at the words. Churchill uses strong poetic language to set up the stakes of the coming battle. He then details what success would look like, referencing freedom, warmth and space. This imagery is immediately contrasted with the consequences of failure. Sinister, sink, abyss and pervert are all words that have negative connotations. Having given the audience a choice, Churchill concludes his speech with an aspirational appeal to duty. So how do we improve? If you've already prepared a speech, read through it and locate the emotional highs and lows. Identify which emotions you're trying to embody and where the transitions are from one to another. Remember that if you're transitioning between emotions, they don't need to be sharp. They don't need to come right after one another like Churchill did. You can have a slow build up so that you start the speech with one emotion and by the very end you've reached another. But it's important that you know what you're trying to transition from and whether or not it's a slow or fast transition. Ask yourself other questions. Are you providing a range of emotions? 
Is the opening and conclusion strong? Are you ending on the same emotion that you started with? And that's okay, you can have a circular speech where you start at a certain emotion, perhaps calm, you make people feel angry, you introduce overwhelm, chaos, provide a solution and bring people back to a calm state. And if that's what you're doing, figure out what emotions you're moving through before you come back to your starting point. Now, sometimes we're too close to our material to see its flaws. So it's important that you ask someone to read through your speech. Close friends or colleagues do a really, really good job of this. If you're ready to present it, say it out loud, present it in front of someone and get their honest feedback. Remember that a speech has more emotional impact when it's spoken out loud and combined with body language and your vocal variety. Until you practice a speech out loud, you may not know how impactful the emotion is or whether the parts of the speech that you thought would be emotional really are and make adjustments as you need to. Let's move on to stories. What makes stories so powerful is that they allow for smooth transitions from one emotion to another. Stories are how we understand information and how we learn. We are hardwired to listen to stories and we have a natural sense of how a story arc works. A typical story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. An entire speech can be structured around a story arc, or you can place smaller stories inside your speech. A well-known story structure is the hero's journey, and I touched on this in a previous podcast. This is the basis for books and movies like Star Wars, Lion King, Harry Potter, and many, many more. The hero receives a call to adventure, and they start their journey. There are escalating challenges along the way, as well as help in the form of friends and mentors. The hero, they pass each of these tests, but they also have a moment of crisis. This usually comes just before confronting the villain. The hero defeats their enemy and returns home to where they started having gained knowledge and experience along the way. The hero's journey and other structures like it provide a template that you can fill with your own emotional triggers. You can portray yourself and the audience as the heroes and cast a common adversary as the villain. Each obstacle that you, the hero, encounter is an opportunity for an emotional appeal. How to improve. Pick your favourite movie or TV show and re-watch it. Look for the struggles that the main character faces and how they're overcome. Look for that hero's journey narrative. Generally, things go well, things go well, things go well, encounter a problem, overcome it, there's a setback, overcome that again, and then finally they get to defeat the main villain. Pay attention to the scenes that make you feel any strong emotion and ask yourself why that is. And the great thing about film and TV is that you have music there as well and you have all the visuals and use of camera. All these things are used very deliberately in order to elicit particular emotional responses. And it doesn't matter what the emotion is, if you're feeling frustrated, angry, or you're feeling sad, any emotion at all, just pause and have a look and see if you can figure out why. How much of it's due to the writing, how much of it is due to the acting, and how much of it is due to music and camera work. People frame information as stories all the time. 
Listen closely during conversations and identify stories told by other people and ask yourself how effective their story is. People do this all the time. If you're in a relationship and your partner comes home from work, the way that they talk about their day is as a story. When you catch up with people and you ask, what's been going on? Tell me about what's exciting you, what you're motivated by at the moment, then the way that they explain what's been happening with them is as a story. And just listen out for that structure. And then think, if I was telling that same story, what would I change? How would I make it punchier? What things could I leave out? And we all have anecdotes that we like to retell. Stories that we tell other people again and again. So make a list of a couple of these stories that you have. And look back and analyse how they've changed over many retellings. What have you shortened to make it better? How have you managed to manipulate the emotion in there? Because chances are, if you've told the story many times, the way you tell it now is much more polished and much better than when you told it the first time. Once you start looking for stories, you start to see that they're everywhere. Let's move on to humour. Make your audience laugh. If you can. It eases tension and helps them relax. We like people who make us laugh. It feels good and we associate that positive feeling with them. Carefully timed jokes can build a connection with your audience. It's good to make them laugh early in your speech. It sets a warm tone and will improve their attitude towards you and your argument. Like all emotional triggers, and I've been using the word trigger a couple of times, but trigger and appeal are really interchangeable terms here. So like all emotional triggers, don't tell a joke just for the sake of it. Connect the humor to an idea or an argument to help it stick in the minds of the listeners. Humor can also be used to break tension right after an emotionally heavy piece of material. If possible, use humor that is particular to your audience. This goes back to previous podcasts. Understand context, know who you are talking to and what is appropriate for them. Now, the reason that humor works goes back to our previous point about contrast. A good punchline is one that the audience doesn't see coming. Great comedians are experts at guiding the emotional experience of their listeners. They take us on a journey, much like a story. And regardless of the style of the comic, their jokes have the same structure. They present a premise. They set the scene. And they make us feel comfortable with that. So we think we have a handle on what's going on. Then they deliver a punchline. And for the punchline to be effective, it needs to subvert the expectation of the audience. It's unexpected. It creates contrast. So how do we improve the use of humour? I find it helps to identify the style of humour that you like. There are a lot of different types of comedy and everyone's taste is slightly different. Some people like things that are very physical and well, a lot of movement, things like slapstick, and other people like very dry, deadpan humour. And also think about the type of energy that you bring to the stage, whether you're quiet and reserved or at the other end of the spectrum, you like to use a lot of gestures and really bounce around. 
and see if there's a style of humor that you can pair with that. So not everyone wants to do something on the slapstick end of comedy, but if you feel a natural affinity with that, then try it out. And just like other emotions, it's easier to make something funny if you are amused. If you're feeling timid and nervous, then trying to sell a joke to the audience probably won't work. The more comfortable you are on stage, the better chance you have of your joke landing. Identify the places in your speech where you expect the audience to laugh and test those parts out on friends. It's very easy when you're writing something to think, man, this is absolutely hilarious. I know that people are gonna laugh at this, but until you actually test it in front of a live audience, you don't know. The audience gets to decide whether it's funny or not, not you. And if the jokes don't have enough impact, change them. Change the words, or if you try that and it's still not working, just cut them entirely. Comedians, as I touched on, are some of the greatest speakers in the world. Find some you like and watch them. And I mean really, really watch them. Pay close attention to how they transition between ideas and from one premise to another. Comedians typically end their sets with their strongest material. And it takes a lot of skill to take an audience that's coming in cold. And first of all, get them comfortable, get them relaxed, and then build them slowly through an escalating series of jokes until they can finish with something that is absolutely hilarious. So pay attention to how they map that process out and whether there's callback. So later jokes referencing earlier ones and building that shared sense of community with their audience. So that's humor. Next thing we're gonna look at are analogies and metaphors. Analogies and metaphors are powerful because they conjure images in the minds of the audience. This helps anchor the information and make it easier to recall. Effective metaphors are ones that use clear and familiar objects or people. People work too. Anyone that the audience already has a strong emotional connection to. Analogies and metaphors can be used to make both positive and negative associations. An analogy is a great way to link information that the audience already has with something emotional. For example, new information has become available about the impact of a sedentary lifestyle. The dangers of inactivity are commonly analogized to other dangerous habits. So you may have heard, for example, sitting is the new smoking, your chair is slowly killing you. That's an analogy. A metaphor carries more weight than an analogy or a simile because it removes the mitigating like. Instead of saying, for example, just like a rubber band, the group could only be stretched so far. You could use the imagery on its own and let the audience make the connection for themselves. For example, a rubber band is strong and flexible, but if you apply enough pressure to it, it will inevitably snap. When we make an effort to connect information, even if the effort is really small, we're more likely to remember a piece of information. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. used metaphors and analogies all the way through his I Have a Dream speech. Here's an excerpt, quote, 
but we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us on demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice." End quote. Here King portrays concepts such as justice and opportunity as physical structures. Having done that, the riches of freedom and security that he alludes to also become tangible physical things. That's not an easy thing to do, but again, King is a master speaker. How to improve. Train yourself to spot metaphors and analogies. When you start looking for them, you'll start to notice them everywhere, just like stories. You'll see them in movies, books, and also in daily conversation. When you hear one, ask yourself how effective it is. And this is a recurring theme with a lot of the improvement sections. Once you see something, evaluate it. Think, how can I use that? Is that a good example of an analogy or a metaphor? If so, why? If not, why? What would you change if it was yours? Is it something you can borrow and incorporate into your own speaking? And try and recall as many as you can. Maybe even take notes in the moment. Now, with your speech that you've written out, make a list of the main arguments you're making and see if you can find both a metaphor and an analogy for each one of those main arguments. And then try and find either a metaphor or analogy for the overall argument and see if you can relate the smaller points back to it. Although metaphors and analogies are powerful tools, you should only use them if they're appropriate. A bad metaphor is worse than not using one at all. Now we move to congruence. Congruence is when your words, manner and body language are all saying the same thing. For the purpose of pathos, congruence refers to your nonverbal communication. Obviously this is a hard thing to demonstrate in an audio only format, but we'll give it a go. I'll just say that I trust that you know what I mean when I say that you can tell when someone is being genuine with their gestures and movement. For example, taking, uh, talking in an animated way but standing dead still is incongruent, it doesn't match up. Talking about horrific events in a really bored tone is incongruent. Speaking passionately with strong gestures about really dry material is incongruent. Matching your body language, tone, volume and rate of speech to your emotional state makes you more convincing. Touching on the last episode, being congruent also helps your ethos. It is a pillar of honesty and trustworthiness. We expect a speaker's nonverbal communication to be consistent with their words. When it isn't, we notice and we switch off. And it doesn't need to be egregious either. Sometimes it only takes a little slip for the audience to see that the speaker is not being genuine with them. So how do we improve? Again, watch other speakers and deconstruct their performances. And you can use professionals, you can use amateurs or people that you're just having regular face-to-face -face conversations with. When they make an emotional appeal, 
Watch their body language and listen to their tone. How well does it match up? Do you get the feeling that they're being sincere? And how would you make it better? And you can tell this watching actors. Great actors do this beautifully. I said right at the start that you should never try and fake emotion. And the people who can fake emotion best in the world are actors. And even then, a lot of them talk about getting into character and really feeling the emotion in the moment. So the actors who manage to portray emotion most convincingly we give Academy Awards to. But if you watch a movie where the acting is bad, that's also a great way to learn. Bad acting is incongruent. It just doesn't match up and it makes us uncomfortable to watch. And a great way to see other incongruent behavior is when you see someone caught in a lie, especially if they're trying unsuccessfully to talk their way out of it. You can see them clam up and you can see the cogs in their head turning as they're trying to figure it out. And all the while, what they're saying doesn't match to their body language. That is incongruent behavior. And that awkward body language is what you're trying to avoid on stage. And you can try it yourself. Take your speech and record yourself. Try performing your speech in a flat, neutral voice, but keep all your gestures and stage movement as you normally would. And then try it the other way around. Have a fully animated voice. Speak with the full range of pitch and volume, all of that good stuff, but have no body movement at all. It's going to feel really, really weird, but it's a valuable training exercise. The best way to be congruent is to be fully present. If you are concentrating on the audience and you're reacting to them in real time, you'll be fine. Problems start to occur when you get caught up in your head. And the solution, as always, is practice. That concludes pathos. To recap, pathos is the use of emotion in your speech, and it's made up of congruence, analogies and metaphors, humor, stories, and by contrasting emotions. Emotional appeals to your audience are critical to your success as a speaker. Failure to infuse your speech with emotion will leave your listeners feeling cold and disconnected. A speech devoid of pathos is dry and easily forgotten. Above all, do not fake emotion. Being disingenuous is a cardinal sin of speaking. When your pathos is strong, your audience will feel connected to you. When you appropriately tie your arguments to emotion, you give them the best chance of being remembered. An audience moved by your words, will be motivated to act on your advice and share what they've heard with others. And that's it for this episode. If you have any questions about public speaking, you can reach me by email at daniel at systematicspeaking.com. Until next time, goodbye.